Howdy, everybody. How are you doing? Great. Yeah, doing awesome. Glad to be back at school after summer. No. Yes, no, maybe so. So the, those of you that are excited to be back at school probably had a pretty boring summer. Those of you who are sad probably had an exciting summer. Um, it's, it's mixed every year. I, I had probably a bit of a medium summer. I didn't do as much uh, traveling or vacationing as I would usually like to do. Um, but I was married for this summer, and I've never done that before. So being married in the summer is pretty awesome. So I'll have to, I'll, that'll have to bump up this summer a few notches. Um, who are the new students joining us this year? Was that ninth grade or is it eighth grade? Yes, God. Are we? What's the lowest grade here? Is it ninth grade? Seventh, eighth. Okay, so raise your hand if you want one of the new guys joining us. Okay, okay, awesome. Um, we haven't become friends yet. Uh, I was here. I liked being with you guys last year, as your principal was saying. Or do you guys call it a principal here, or do you just have like some special word? Is it like a headmaster or like Superman kind of thing? We'll see. So I'm happy to be here. I do love coming to talk to you guys. You guys are. I'll, don't tell anyone else, but you're my favorite school to speak at. I think partly because I don't have to like use a mic or do any setup. I just come, show up, and uh, we do our thing here. And the heat is working now, which is also really phenomenal. Uh, I notice also. I think I also have noticed there's a bit of that. Uh, there's like the eighth to ninth grade summer growth spurt where all the eighth grade boys come back as giants in the ninth grade, and I, it just makes me feel even shorter than I already am. Uh, and be, believe it or not, in all elementary school growing up, I was always like the very middle of the height line. Like, you know when you line up on picture day? Like, I was always that kid in the very middle of the front row because I was medium height, but I didn't get that eighth grade summer growth spurt. So everyone else just zoomed on up and I just stayed about where I'm at. So it's nice to see some of you uh, coming, returning to school as giants, uh, which I never knew. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, my, my name's JC, for you new students. Um, I like playing soccer, so I'm glad to hear you guys got a good soccer team going on. I enjoy backpacking, it's something I like to do. Uh, in BC, British Columbia, where I'm from, we have lots of mountains, which I really like to go up and climb. So I finally decided I would give Michigan a shot, backpacking. Uh, last week, my wife and I went out on an overnight trip down the Manistee River Trail, and it was pretty fun. It was actually more beautiful. I give your state more credit than I, I originally thought, uh, but we did get caught in a thunderstorm, which was kind of rough. We were like literally hiking in pouring rain and soaked to the skin, but you know, those are, those are good, good memories, right? Good experiences. I also, I didn't know I was going to be talking to you guys until about 10.30 last night when Mr. Davis <laughs> emailed me asking if I would come show up, so I was uh, working on some stuff at 6.30 this morning, so if this doesn't make any sense, uh, I don't know who can blame. Just blame someone else, don't blame me though. Uh, I want to talk to you guys about some foundational things this morning, and we're actually going to look at some stuff at a pretty high academic level, and you guys are the only school I would trust to be able to even attempt to take in this material, uh, because you guys are supposed to be really smart and really awesome. Uh, so, if you have your Bibles, you can look at the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. Going back to the basics here, the foundations of wisdom. The foundations of knowledge. Proverbs, chapter 1. Proverbs, chapter 1. Going to look at the first seven verses here. Okay, Proverbs, chapter 1 says... The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. 
Here's why he wrote the book. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. And here's our key verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. God's word tells us that the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of everything you're going to be trying to attain this school year, the knowledge you're going to increase in the beginning of it, the foundation of it, is the fear of the Lord. The acknowledgement of God's existence. The recognition that God is. That God exists. And you might think, why do we need to fear God to have knowledge? Don't people that don't fear God have knowledge? What does God have to do with our knowing things? What does knowing God have to do with knowing everything else? God is foundational to knowledge. We're told in the Bible the difference between wisdom and foolishness. That the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And we are told in Romans chapter 1 that God is clearly seen in creation. It's manifestly evident that it would take an almighty power to bring everything that is. Nothing does not organize itself into everything. It's abundant just in our overall perception that God is. And we're told that people, although we naturally have this idea of God, this thought of God, that people suppress this truth because they don't want to give thanks to God and they don't want to glorify God. And it says in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools. And one thing you guys are going to come up against, if not now, if in college, whenever, that the belief system we hold will be called foolishness. It'll, you'll be thought old-fashioned or antiquated for believing in ideas like God, for believing that the Bible is God's truth. And this accusation can sometimes feel like, oh, I don't want to be thought foolish. I don't want to be thought gullible like I'm taken in. But this is what comes from the world. And there's a fundamental difference because worldly knowledge doesn't have God as its foundation. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit because they're foolishness to him. And he can't know them because they're spiritually discerned. There is a fear of the Lord, an acknowledgement of God that gives us a foundation for truly understanding what this world is, for truly understanding our place in this world, for truly understanding who you are. Okay, uh, we're going to talk a bit about philosophy. So, philosophy. If you were to think of your whole way of understanding reality as philosophy, philosophy classically has three components. Okay, these are, um, they might sound intense, but they're not that confusing. The three components of philosophy are epistemology, metaphysics, and ethics. 
Okay, what this simply means, metaphysics means what is. What is there that exists? What is everything that there is? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about metaphysics. Epistemology is how do we know things? How can you know for certain anything, any knowledge? That's epistemology. And ethics is what is right and what is wrong. How ought we to live? And God provides a foundation for each one of these things. With epistemology, the world, in so many ways, philosophers can't figure out how we can even know anything. There's a struggle for even a basic understanding of how can you even know anything. But we can know because there is a God who has revealed truth. And in God's word is a communication from God to us that is a true (coughs) communication and provides a foundation for knowledge. And so if we have that foundation, then we also have a metaphysic. God tells us what exists. God tells us what is. God tells us who we are. God tells us who he is. God tells us what there is in the world. Unbelievers struggle with a lot of things that we take for granted. You see, in an atheist perspective, all that exists is material, atoms. And atoms cannot account for things like logic, for things like reason, for things like free will, for things like love, for things like our mind, for things like the soul. Things that are so embedded in us as humans that to deny them is like denying everything that is natural to us. I remember one time hearing an atheist talk who later became a Christian. He was saying how trying to be a consistent atheist, he felt like he was just slowly ripping every cord that God naturally gave him out of his mind until he was basically a robot. Everything natural and beautiful that God put in man, he felt like he had ripped it out with his worldview. And if we have God's metaphysic, God's epistemology, we also have God's ethic that God gives us a set of instructions of how to live life in a way that is truly meaningful and is truly fulfilling and truly does good in this world. And I want to zero in on one aspect of this. We could talk about any one of these, but as far as metaphysics, what is? One fundamental difference between how we as Christians understand what exists and how people that don't hold our worldview understand what exists is right back to the nature of man, who we are. There's a good tract I like by a preacher, Vodi Bauckham, called Four Ultimate Questions. And he says there's four questions we all need to wrestle with. Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? And how can what's wrong with the world be made right? And I want us to think a bit about those first two. Who am I? And why do I exist? Because the answer we can give to that as Christians is so much more satisfying and so much more compelling, and so much more in sync with what we naturally understand than anything the world can give. So the first crucial element here is that we understand, according to Scripture, that humans are two-part beings. We have a body, and we have a soul. The secular view does not recognize the existence of the soul, but the soul is a part of all of us. And we're told this in Genesis 2-7, that the Lord made man from dust and breathed the breath of life into him, and he became a living soul. We are a living soul because God has given a soul to a body. And you can think of these two parts of man like this. The body 
is what connects us to the earth. The body is something like unto what we have in common with all the material world. But the soul is what connects us to God. The soul is the noble part of us. The part of us that finds connection with the divine. And so the problem is that when people start denying their soul and they start ignoring their soul, all they're left with is a connection to, in a sense, the beastly nature. And they're controlled by vile passions. And Romans 1 talks about this, that when people rejected the knowledge of God, they gave themselves up to vile passions, to those animalistic instincts that just compound and compel as people run to evil, as people run to soul-destroying sin. But we recognize that man has a soul. God breathed the breath of life into us. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, this was like a popular video maybe a year or two ago. A famous actor, Chris Pratt, got to do an acceptance speech at an award show. And he did these like nine rules for life thing, and a bunch of Christians were like, oh, this is so cool, this actor said some Christian stuff. And Christians always get, like, anyone who's famous that's remotely Christian, like, wow, this is so amazing. But anyways, on one of the points he said, one of his little rules for life was, you have a soul, be careful with it. And the whole crowd of people clearly not living according to God's plans, they all cheer. Because people naturally recognize that we have a soul. Because if you get rid of that, you get rid of the noble part of us, and you end up basically an animal. Basically no better than an animal. When you take out that noble part, we naturally recognize we have a noble part of us that's designed for higher things. And again, let's, let's go a bit academic here. Our soul is said to have particular faculties. That is things that it can do, parts of our soul. And the faculties of our soul are three. It's our mind, our will, and our affections. So our mind, our knowledge, what we think about, our will, that's what we want, what compels us to choose. And then our affections, what we love and what we hate. And when we're told that God made man in his image, what we're talking about is how the soul of man was made to reflect God. And it was made to reflect God in three ways that relate to each of these. First is that we were going to have true knowledge. A true knowledge of the way things really are in our mind. Secondly, to have righteousness in our will. That our wills choose what is right. And then thirdly, that our affections love what is holy. And this image of God has been defiled and defaced through our sin. And it's been largely removed, though you still see the impressions of it. And the unbeliever has lost this holiness, righteousness, love of God, true light and knowledge. And we see a shadow there's, it's almost as if you can think of the soul as a canvas and the image of God painted beautifully upon it, but it's been rubbed off and defaced, yet you can still see where that was. The canvas is still there. The soul of everyone is a beautiful, glorious creation, but it was made to reflect the image of God. And you will never find satisfaction for your soul, which is what we're all running after. True happiness, true fulfillment, true love and true joy, your soul will never find that until it finds it in reflecting the image of God. And this is something that people in the world will never know and not understand because they don't have the truth like we do. They don't have this compelling story that we were made for high things. We were, our souls were made to know and enjoy and commune with God. That your soul can interact with the divine 
is one of the most incredible gifts you could ever think of. But sin defiles it, and we lose the beauty God made us to shine forth. We lose the beauty. So when we see our purpose, that God gave you a soul to reflect him, the first thought is, how do we bring our soul back to God? Our souls have been lost through our sin. We've wandered our own way. We've wandered in darkness. We've wandered in unrighteousness. And we love things that are evil and we hate things that are good. And so if this is the state of your soul, the first step is to return your soul back to your creator. In repentance to say, God, I don't have the right answers myself. I don't naturally choose what is right. I don't naturally love what is holy. And to repent is to turn away from seeking to be the master of your own soul and to give your soul back to the one who created it and has a design for it. And to trust in Jesus and what happens when you trust in Christ for forgiveness. When you believe the gospel is that we are new creations. God recreates our soul after the image of him. And the destiny of the Christian, Romans 8.30 says, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so if you do know Christ, and your soul has been recreated in his image, this is still an ongoing work of being beautified. Of as God paints on your soul with true knowledge coming from his word, true righteousness in your will that you want to obey Jesus. You want to do what God commands. That's a beautification of your soul. And when you learn through experience to love what is truly lovely and to hate what is truly evil, that is your soul being beautified into the image of Christ. And that is the way that you find life and love and happiness in life. And not just happiness in this life, but eternal felicity and true joy and glory hereafter. This is the story that we have, that though we lost so much due to our sin, through Christ we are renewed and brought back to the one who made us and recreated after the image of Jesus. That's a compelling story. That's something worth living for, and that's something seeking out this year. As the foundation of your knowledge is the fear of the Lord, and you're being taught here, through your knowledge you're renewed in your mind to obey God with your will, to love God with your affections. So students, be people that seek to grow in the knowledge of God, that seek to grow in obedience to God, and seek to grow in love and worship to God, because you're not going to find true life and joy anywhere else. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have shone the light of truth. The light has come into the world, our Lord Jesus Christ, and he has showed us the way to the Father through trusting in his sacrificial death and resurrection, being united with him in death. Lord, we desire to be united with you in that final day, in the final resurrection. Lord, I pray that you will help each of these students to recognize the folly, the foolishness of seeking life, of seeking health for their soul apart from you, that they would take stock that they have not just a body, that they wouldn't live just for animalistic instincts and the lusts of the flesh, but that they would live unto God, And find and prove that true joy, true happiness and fulfillment is found in serving the King of Kings and serving the creator of the soul. Serving you in sincerity and truth. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Be with us the rest of this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.